0: Bibles, we are in what book? Joshua. We're in book of Joshua, The Promise, Part 3. Man, I love this story. I do. You know what I was looking at last night? I was on my phone. I was trying to find any awesome movies that were made about the conquest of Canaan. There are none. There's some cartoons that were made. And there's a documentary from 1986 about it, Jericho. No awesome. Why? Those of you that are aspiring cinematographers, screenwriters, please make a movie about this story. It's incredible. We have a bunch of ones about Exodus, but nothing after Joshua takes over. little plug for that. All right, here we go. Joshua, we're in chapter three this morning. Catch my breath and see where we are. So we've been, we've been making our way through this story. I'm not going to recap a little bit. Go back and watch the Facebook videos if you missed the last couple of weeks. But essentially, General Joshua and the people of Israel are standing on the brink of promise. They've heard what God has said, and they have said, yes, we can. We can do this. We can move into this land called Canaan, this land that's a land of promise, this land that is full of Of abundance and provision. By the way, it's also a land full of giants and cities and walls and opposing forces. Doesn't matter. God said, We can do it. We're going to go in. And last week, they sent some spies into the city of Jericho and they came back with quite a different perspective. For 40 years, they've been under the perspective that they were on the losing side. All of a sudden, after one conversation with the enemy, perspective changes. The enemy, as it turns out, are terrified of them. So now in chapter 3, there's one thing that stands in the way of promise. What is that one thing? It's real easy. It's the river. Remember, they came on a sort of a roundabout way. Instead of going straight up, they had to kind of come in, and now they're having to come around from the east and head west, and they've got to cross over this river called Jordan, into this incredible land um, making their way there so let me read let me begin reading in chapter three i want to read verses one through eight and then i want to skip some and read in verse 14 goes with me and it's up here on the screen too if you don't if, if you don't have a device or something with you Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp giving orders to the people, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Verse 6, Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and they went ahead of them. Verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Go on to verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. All right, let me pray for us. We're going to get into this. Father, would you open our eyes and minds and hearts to hear your word, to understand your word, and to do what your word says for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so (laughs) this this is one of the most incredible events in Israel's history, and I want you to pay attention to several observations about it. The first is this, notice what leads the way. God's presence is leading the way, and God's presence is leading the way by a long margin. I had to do that. I'm not good at math, so I had to do the math. We know that a cubit is about 18 inches, and it was kind of measured from the tip of the finger to the elbow, and it says that it is, what, 2,000, 3,000 cubits of a safe distance between the people. According to my pretty immature math, that's over a half a mile between the the people of Israel and where the priests and the Levites and the presence is. It seems awfully, awfully strange, doesn't it? But keep in mind that God is trying to establish, yes, he is with them, yes, he is in their midst, but there is a a sacredness, a set-apartness, a danger, if you will, to his presence. It's not something to be trifled with. It's going to lead the way, but you must honor and respect and revere the presence as it goes ahead of you. The fear of the Lord, even now he's, he's establishing this, this fear of the Lord um, in this. So that's the first thing I noticed. Also, I want you to notice that the Bible says that, that the river is at flood stage. Now, we know in the ancient world, rivers were revered. They were often worshipped, especially the gods of the rivers were often revered. We know this is true by, by you know reading the, the Egyptian history, the Nile. There's so many gods of the Nile, right? We know, and, and looking at sort of the Indian history, uh, the Ganges River was 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 worshipped and honored. Tigris uh, River, Euphrates, all of these were honored and revered by ancient people. The Jordan was would be the same thing. The people of Canaan, this ancient people who were living in the land of Canaan, would have would have sort of revered uh, the, the gods of this river. One of those was likely the god called Baal, who was the god of storm, who was the god of chaos, who was the, sort of the god of um, sort of this, this, this uh, the, the gods of rivers and waters and rain. All of this was in the realm of Baal. So the river at flood stage represented these ancient gods at their most terrifying They are unpredictable. They are chaotic. They are not something to be reckoned with. And it's interesting that God wants them to cross over right when this is happening, as if to say to the nations in view, I am sovereign over all of the gods of this world. I think that's, I think that's, that's really important, to, and we're going to see more of that next week when we actually look at how the walls of Jericho come down. But even now, God is sending a signal. He's sending, he's sending sort of this, this warning to the nations around, no one is more sovereign. No one is sovereign over me. I will be honored. I will be, I will be, I will be victorious in the eyes of the nations. So the, for the Israelites, this, this, this flooded river, this realm of Baal, this realm of chaos and power, it's nothing to be, be revered. It's nothing to go around, it is simply something to be crossed over. And God's going to say, I'm going to disrupt that so that you can cross right over the symbol of power. You guys with me? It's an object lesson. God says it's an object lesson for both Israel and for the neighboring people. He has complete sovereignty. So I think that, that stands out to me as well. Here's though, go to verse 15. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest, yet as soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge. That's important. The water stopped flowing. I got to tell you, if I'm Joshua, I've heard what God has said. I believe him, but I'm getting a little bit nervous. Am I wrong? Okay, so I've got a fighting force of 40,000 men, plus all of our families, I am leading them on a march to, an, to, a, to a sort of impassable river. It's like we're going down to the Kentucky River. Imagine it being that wide, Imagine all of us marching down to the Kentucky River. God says, we're going to cross over. I'm walking, and all I can see are the floodwaters of the Jordan tumbling through the hillside, tumbling through on their way south to the Dead Sea. I'm walking. I'm thinking, oh, God, I hope this works. I know it will, but I hope it does. (laughs) I'm getting nervous, right? I mean, it's like, let's be honest. There's a part of you that feels like, what if this is like, what if if I get down, and I'm, okay, I'm going to take a step in the river still there you know and you ever you ever like walk into lakes or rivers and it, it's like as you go deeper in the water kind of comes farther up and i'm betting i'm betting joshua's thinking what do, what do we do if nothing happens what do we do if when we get there the water is still just flowing do we do we turn around do we swim <laughs> And imagine everyone stops right here. The ark is here. The priests are here. The Levites are here. Everybody's watching. Everybody's hearing the sound of this river. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. God has not delivered on his promise. We're stopped, and there's a river between us until, and Joshua says, take a step. Take a step. And it's not literally, literally, it's not until the foot goes into the water does the miracle happen. You guys, that is so important to recognize in this story. Yeah. There is no miracle until risk is, 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 is acted on. I love the story of George Mueller. Um, he was what 1800 in the 1900s, he was a believer. He was a godly man living in England. He had a heart for orphans. We started orphanages, and he would live you know, in these big orphan houses, and he would just take in any, any orphan needed home. George Mueller was not, you know, he was just an ordinary guy who loved God. And uh, he, in his biography, autobiography, he would tell the story of how God would provide. And more often than not, it would be something like this. And in his journal, in his diary, he would write, we have no bread, we have no milk, but we set the table and we gathered the children around and we said thanks with empty plates. Who does that? And he would record time after time again, no sooner had they said amen than a knock would be on the door. It would be the milkman. Hey guys, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Mueller, listen, I'm on my way home. I had some leftover milk. Could you use it? It would be the baker. The baker would knock on the door. Mr. Mueller, listen, my horse threw a shoe. I can't do anything. Would you like some? He says time and time again at the 11th hour, God shows up. Who sets a table for orphans with nothing to give them? It's fake. That's awesome. And Joshua goes in, and he says, and he touches the water. And all of a sudden, the water just stops. The water begins to diminish. It begins to go down. The level begins to go down. And they can see to their north, far on the horizon, this wall of water beginning to pile up. And soon the last bits of the water make their way onto the south to the Dead Sea. And not only that, the mud dries up. It says dry ground. I want to take the Bible for what it says, right? I mean, if God can make it dry ground, or if he can stop the water, he can surely make it not muddy for their shoes and all their animals. And the most incredible thing happens. This is like one of those milestones in Israel's history. The priest who, uh, so let me, let me go back to where I'm reading here. I think I got ahead of myself. Hold up. Verse 15, so they piled up in a great heap, and the the people crossed over opposite Jericho, 40,000, fighting force of 40,000, plus all of their families. The priests who who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they stopped in the middle of the Jordan, and they stood there. So at this point, there's no water in the river. Everybody's now on the western side of the Jordan, where they belong. But the priests are standing in the middle of the river with the Ark of the Covenant. They're standing there. And this is one of those milestones in Israel's history that, that will sort of, it's like the top, it's like one of the top two or three when, 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 whenever they're looking back on all of this. They get, and Meg and I were talking about this yesterday, it's almost like mom and dad had their crossing over the river story, the Red Sea. And now this generation gets their own story to tell. I believe that we can't live on the stories of our parents. We need our own encounters with God. We need our own miracles with God. We need our own, our own rivers that God is going to make a way for us to move into. And it's beautiful that God gives them that. God says, look, I did it in the past, but that's, I'm going to do it again now. I'm going to do it again now. I want to part this river for you and for your generation so that you can see that I haven't changed. My, my promises haven't changed. And this is, I think this is one of the first times that they realized that they have been delivered out of something, and the, the, uh, out of something into God's, into God's promises that are actually theirs. It's, there's something about standing in the middle of the promise that you realize, wow, this is not just a pipe dream. This is not just something. It is, it is really happening. And, and, and they're, they're experiencing that. They're, they're, they're standing now on the Western Bank and they're realizing God actually did it. And I, there's irony too that they are crossing over one of the lowest points in the earth's crust. This rift valley that runs from just in the northern part of Israel all the way through the continent of Africa. The rift valley is one of the lowest places on earth. And at flood season, not only is it the lowest place, it's also the one filled with this imagery of chaos and war and torrent. And isn't it incredible that God says, I want to move you through that place to get you to my promises. So they're standing here and it seems like, it seems like this is the time to jump into battle, right? This is it. It would seem, and Jericho is about five miles away, you know, so got a little bit to go, but it seems like Joshua would say, guys, momentum is on our side. Let's go. Our faith is really high. Everybody's excited. God's doing it. Let's run and storm the gates. You know what I'm saying? But what happens next, though, is like some really strange things begin happening in chapters four and five. I'm like, what in the world? It's almost like, you yeah, guys have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. I know it's kind of old or, maybe, um, or you know, maybe Band of Brothers. Some of those movies where it shows sort of uh, the, the, the footage of, of the crossing of the channel on D-Day. You've got these young men, these young soldiers, all in these boats, and there's just, by, by the hundreds, these boats are making their way across the, what, nine, ten, uh, however many miles of the channel to land on the beaches of Normandy. Omaha Beach, and Utah Beach, and Gold Beach, and all these other, know all these other ones, and they're all landing there. It's almost, it's almost like you can imagine, and knowing that when they get to the beaches, there's war. There are bluffs with German pillboxes and snipers and machine gunners and they know they're getting hit before they even get out of the before they even get out of the boats. Imagine though, as if all of these sort of D-Day soldiers land on the beach and then the the lieutenants and the sergeants say, okay guys, let's come together, let's have a huddle. We got some things we need to do first. They're gonna get slaughtered. It's like what who in the world does this? This is the time for action. But God says, oh no, there's some things we need to do first. And I want to point you to those, because I think, I think, I think that all three are significant for this story. So let's jump on and read them. There are three of them. First one involves some stones. Let me begin reading in, in, in chapter four. Verse one, when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, he said to them, he said, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israelites, to serve as a sign among you, In the future, when your children ask you what do these stones mean, tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. I think God wanted several things. I think, first of all, he wanted there to be a visible reminder to the nations who really was in charge it wasn't baal it wasn't asherah it wasn't Moloch. it was yahweh the god of the universe and he wanted something that was a permanent reminder of his power but i think more than anything god is staking his claim he is putting his stamp of ownership on their future Stay with me here. I want you you to pay attention. He's, he's 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 putting his ownership saying, I have the right to your future here in this land. I'm doing this not just for you, but I'm doing this for your children and for your children's children and for their children for as long as you're in this place. God says, I want your future to be consecrated to me. Can okay, you guys with me on that? It's meant to be generational. God is claiming their future for himself. Let's keep on reading. We're going to jump a little bit. We're not going to read all of this. Jump over and jump over to chapter 5. So they do that by the way. They go and they find 12 stones. We don't know how they're they're raised. We don't know how they're positioned. They're obviously not going to be like Stonehenge, you know. They're not that big cuz it says that a, a person could put it on their shoulder. So you can imagine, you know, relatively small. But they're meant to last, and the, and, and the people, they, they position them in such a way right on the banks of the river. And it's like, it's almost like the people it's, it's like are like, okay, Joshua, now, we, we did that we did what God said. Can we go? Can we go to Jericho? And God, God says, no, hold up, not yet. We've got something else we've got to do. Verse 2, chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again (laughs) Joshua's writing down notes okay make flint knives got it are you kidding (laughs) so Joshua calls the men in calls all of them together (laughs) guys God's been awesome hasn't he isn't God so good? Can't we trust God? Yeah, we can trust God. Yeah. Didn't He bring us over the Jordan? Yeah, he did. See these stones around us? Yeah, God's awesome. Okay, we got something we gotta do. Drop your drawers. <laughs> so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haaraloth. The Bible tells us why he did that. Their fathers and grandfathers had been circumcised in the same kind of manner when they came out of Egypt. God put a mark upon them. He put a mark, not to be graphic, but he put a mark upon their symbol of strength and virility. As if to say, your strength, your virility comes from me. So we did that to that first generation. They were marked. Their sons, not been born yet. Wandering around in the desert, all of a sudden their sons were born. Along the way, they just said, this is dumb. We're not going to inflict pain upon our sons. God has abandoned us after all. We're going to die out here in the desert. Who cares? And so these young boys, these young infant boys, then were raised up and they grow up and they become the second generation. They become the warriors who will see God's promises But they are unmarked. And God says, I need you to be marked. And so he does that. Verse 8, after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. The Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Isn't that interesting? Still there was reproach. Still there was shame upon them even though they were God's chosen. I think in this, God isn't staking his claim to their future. He's staking his claim to their present, to their here and now. See, it's one thing to put up a stone for everybody to see. It's another thing to have your own body be consecrated and set apart for his purposes. It's not for your children it's not for your grandchildren it's for the present it's for the here and now and God is saying I want you Israel to belong to me now here and now in the present I want to put my mark upon you because you are set apart for my purposes before we go into battle Israel I need to know that I have your now that I have your here and now I see that I have your future I see that I have but I want your present I want your strength. I want your energy. I want your sexuality. He says, we can't go any farther until I know that I have it. And so they say yes, and they do that. Let's keep on going. One more. Chapter 5, verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Guess what God is staking his claim to now? Not the future, not the present, but the the past. As if to say, Israel... I want you to always be reminded that I was here long before you came along, that my promises were in place long before today. I have a claim to your past because I built your past. And so, before we go any farther, we're going to sit. We're going to break this bread. We're going to drink of the cups of Passover. We're going to sit. We're going to. We're going to eat the bitter herbs and salt water. Because you need to be reminded, this is the cost. This is what it costs for you to be where you are today. And then something really crazy happens. Verse 11, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. Unleavened bread and roasted grain. I remember when we first moved here to Lexington, we'd been in a small town in Louisiana. We didn't have Whole Foods. We didn't have Trader Joe's. We didn't have, I remember like our first week here, we were like at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's like like every day. It's like, oh, we're in the promised land. We get good food. Yes, we pay $5 for a loaf of bread, but it's good food. You know what I'm saying? It's like they cross over, and this is that very day. They get to enjoy the, 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 the blessings of God's promises. God is so good. From day one, he is going to be blessing them. Day one, he's going to be blessing them. But it says this, verse 12, the manna stopped the day after. Y'all know what the manna is, right? Manna is what they've been eating for 40 years. What does manna mean? It means, what's this? They've been eating that for 40 years. Manna flakes for breakfast. Manna casserole for lunch marinated fried manna for dinner every day kind of gotten used to it and then all of a sudden one morning they wake up where are my manna flakes what am i going to do and the flow of provision suddenly dries up yeah we hated manna but at least it was there at least we didn't have to do anything for it right we didn't have to go out and like cultivate the soil and grow things We didn't have to do any of that. It was just there. God provided supernaturally. And God says, yep, it's time to grow up. I've been teaching my son, Cohen, to ride a bike. You know what he had on his bike for the longest time? Training wheels. You ever seen a 15-year-old on a bike with training wheels? (laughs) Kind of embarrassing. I've been there. No, I'm just kidding. I wasn't there. (laughs) I'm teaching him to ride a bike. And just the, we were doing it this week. He's got the hang of it. Just the, the absolute, and first of all, there was a little bit of shock. Where are my training wheels there's a lot of pain falling over there's a lot of like apathy i don't want to do this anymore but through persistence all of a sudden he learns to ride on his own and god is saying listen i'm going to bring you into a land of promise but i'm not going to hold your hand through this what is god doing He's consecrating them is what he's doing. He's consecrating their future, their present, and their past. All of these spheres of their reality, God is saying, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Because he knows that before the battle in the natural begins, he's got to win the battle in the spiritual. God God knows, look, the walls of Jericho, that's nothing. Your stubborn hearts, that's a bigger deal. So through these three unusual events, he's preparing his people. He's preparing his people in two ways. One, by deepening their dependency upon him. You're going to be dependent upon me. I'm going, to, I'm going to immobilize your warriors for a little while. I'm going to take away your flow of provision that I've been providing. Yes, I know. I know we're on the verge of battle. I know. I get it. But I need you to be so dependent upon me that there is no hope but me. As you move forward, he's deepening his dependency. The second thing is, he is consecrating them entirely to his purposes the past, the present, and the future. Is it possible? Is it possible that God wants to do the same things in my life and in your life? I think so. God hasn't changed, his heart for you and I hasn't changed. He's still on his throne. He still wants to have a a holy people set apart in the world for his glory to to be manifest to the world. He still wants that today. He still has good promises for you and I, good things that he wants for you. God wants good things for you. He does. He really does. And God is still a, a miraculous working God. But I think he wants to know, but do I have your heart, all of it? Before we can possess the land, God must possess us. Before we can possess his promises, he's got to possess us. He's got to own us. Am I right? Worship team, come on up. Come on, church. Let's stand up together. Oh, I'm excited for next week. I love this part of the story as we get to see what happens. Don't you wish we could, like, forget we ever heard this story? Because it kind of becomes a little passe, like, oh, yeah, we all know the song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came. We know. What if we could forget that? What if we didn't know how the story ended? Like, this is so awesome to see what God's going to do. But it's even more awesome to see what he's already done in the heart of this nation. They are already victorious. Because they're saying yes to God at every step of the way. Come on, that's that's my challenge for you. We got one week left. We got one week left. Let's press in. What does God what does God want? What's he asking for? What have you been wrestling with? What's hard to let go of? Money? Your career? Your retirement? Habits? Sex? What's hard to let go of? What's difficult to really give?